You are listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with faith leaders and academics to explore deep questions of meaning. Questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as, why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honoured to welcome back to our show three guests, the most we've ever had on the show at one time, uh, Mordechai Schreiber, Iqbal Yunus and Ian Punnett, who all three together are now united in our show uh, and through their book, uh, where they were co-authors of the book, How Millennials Can Lead Us Out of the Mess We're In, A Jew, A Muslim and A Christian Share Leadership Lessons from the life of Moses. We had Ian and Iqbal last time. Mordechai is joining us as well. Welcome to all three of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us back, despite how we did last time. You did very well <laughs> last time. It was so fascinating. I wanted to have you back. I, I want to start at the, at the very beginning, but near the, near the beginning of the book. I, there's a question that the three of you asked that I really liked, which was, and I quote, how exactly did God turn a fugitive, overprivileged palace dweller into a great leader for the ages? In some sense, we addressed a little bit of some of that last time, but, but this is looking at it from a very different perspective. So you, you asked, what exactly did God, sorry, what exactly did God turn a fugitive, overprivileged palace dweller into a great leader for the ages? What, what are your thoughts on this? Let's start with Rabbi Mordechai, since you haven't been on the show yet. Yeah. Um, well, we know that um, baby Moses was rescued from the Nile and was raised by Pharaoh's daughter in the palace. But we really, I think, start getting to know Moses when he goes out. And apparently he knows that the Hebrews are his brothers. And he is... Uh, witnessing, uh, you know, uh, typical mistreatment of slaves, which unfortunately has happened uh, in the last century here in America quite a bit. So we know what, what's going on. And apparently uh, he, uh, he understood, you know, that something here was very wrong. And uh, he was not uh, seduced by being privileged in the palace. He uh, apparently was a a uh, person who could think on, on his own, and he understood that something was very wrong. So for you, there's a sort of transcending the luxurious life that he had. That's, that's why God specifically picks him? Yes. Uh, well, God um, fixes, uh, chooses him later, I, I believe, in the story of the little goat or a little lamb that disappears and then uh, he realizes that this this is a, a true leader. That even a, a, a little, you know, and, and everybody is important. Everybody matters. And he's not about to, you know, let an, even uh, an, an animal, which, which of course I think in the Hindu religion would be greatly appreciated. And uh, and maybe let's ask Iqbal as well. You know, what what's your answer to this question? Why did God turn a fugitive? overprivileged palace dweller into a great leader for the ages? Uh, I, I think from uh, our Muslim point of view, uh, 
God may have decided already. In fact, there's a hint of that, that even at the time of uh, when Moses was separated from his mother, uh, God comforts the mother by saying, we will return him to you and we will select him as our messenger. So the hint of that. Now, the other aspect of this is the variety of experiences is strengthened his character. So it's not only that he was somebody who understood poverty or, or, or adversity, he understood you know, wealth and, and prosperity also. He understood so he, the variety of experiences. It seems almost as if God is putting him, putting him through, through that phases of, of, of experience. Okay, you are first, uh, you know, kind of a hunted person, then you are in luxury, then you have the adversity, you kill somebody and ask for forgiveness and so on. Uh, and then you have to travel to this new place and serve uh, as a shepherd and so on. And so, so to me, it speaks of uh, God's way of training a person to a variety of experiences and then find the person to be fit to, be, to receive a message. In, in the book as well, you, uh, thank you for those answers. In the, in the book as well, you, the three of you quote movie director James Cameron. And you say, you say we are living in the time between when the lookout saw the iceberg and when the Titanic hit the iceberg. So maybe Ian to answer this one first. Does that mean that disaster is coming and inevitable and there's nothing we can do about it? Well, I was talking with Cameron at a time when I think he felt very much like there was nothing that we could do to avoid hitting the iceberg. Um, I was interviewing him. He was on the set at the time of the new... uh, they were doing um, some of the uh, work for the new avatar. And so I only had a few minutes to talk to him, but he, it was interesting. I mean, the subject that, that we were talking, we, he's a friend of a friend and the subject that we addressed specifically at that time, we were talking about journalism and how poorly it felt like we understood our national story. And that was really a lot about what he was speaking about was that the, the, communi- the level of communications is so bad that we, if we did see the iceberg up ahead, can we avoid it? Would we be able to steer it away? Now, he, he, he kind of said it with a wink a little bit, obviously hearkening back to his you know, Academy Award winning movie, Titanic. But I think he also felt like that that was sort of metaphorical, um, even that movie was, that we would, we had to learn that you couldn't wait to the last second to, to, to see trouble or to look ahead for trouble. And I think that's really much more what he meant than being kind of a millenarian, you know, and just sort of thinking that at any minute a meteor is gonna hit the planet. Although I'd hate to speak for James Cameron because Perhaps that's exactly how he feels. So, but I think that that was my impression. But for you, hearing his words, it's not necessarily saying the end is nigh. But it sounds like what you're saying is, if the end were nigh, we are so unprepared socially, communally, in terms of our communication, that we would essentially force the end's hand. Well, I think he was just speaking about the thickness of the atmosphere between that time. We were living in that time and sort of a perpetual time 
between you know where we were and where the iceberg was and what are we prepared to do what can we do that could avoid what some people might call an inevitable collision interestingly enough his research in titanic and the people that he works with on that would say that the titanic did it wrong they there actually would have been a way to avoid hitting the iceberg but they were unprepared for it and and they thought a grazing would never have sunk that ship, but that's all it ended up taking in the long run. So maybe Mordechai, maybe my question is then what, what do we need to do to organize, to make sure that we can, we can avoid communal difficulty danger in the future? Uh, you're, talking, you're asking about the, the reality that we're living in right now. Yeah. Yeah. And sir, you're having, you're talking to three men who represent the three Abrahamic religions. And my answer is we've reached a point in time, we, we the human race, okay, where we're all in it together. And at long last, for heaven's sakes, we must wake up and realize that we can't play these games anymore, that sadly said, well, I shouldn't talk about what's happening right now, you told me, but, but, but we, it, it, it's, it's, it's inevitable. We're seeing a, such a tragic, tragic conflict. And this kind of conflicts that have been with us since the beginning of civilization, we cannot afford it anymore. We're all gonna go down like the Titanic. It's, it's, a, it's a heck of a metaphor, a heck of a metaphor, right. because we are a human race facing the, the, the onslaught of the iceberg. Either if we pull together, like the three of us, right. we have a chance. If we don't, we're all, all going to go down the tubes. That's, that's the way I see it. it, it yeah. there's, no, there's no either or, like Kierkegaard would tell us about either or. No, there is only one choice and so it sounds like what you're saying is is just having that that intention itself just yeah. making that declared statement we have no choice but to work together is in fact a, a unifying call in some sense absolutely we we it's clear to me that from be, the beginning of our th history of our three religions three faiths god's intention was for us to work together and we've been bad, bad children. We so didn't then, get the message. And, and God in his infinite mercy has given us a lot of time to, to, to figure it out. But we may be running out of time. It's, it's now or never. It, it may be our last chance. So maybe using that just before we take our break. And if I can turn to Iqbal, if the, if the clock is ticking and if we... You know, if, if there is little time left, as well as, you know, we're, we're moving uh, between the three of you from we need to we need to communicate better to we need to make a stated unification for you, Iqbal, before we take a break. Wh where do we go with that? What do we do with that? How how do we what's the next step after that statement of, OK, it, it's now or never? So, so two, two thoughts come to mind. One is, of course, uh, a, a general thought that the Quran expresses in many ways. And that is that God does not change the condition of a people until they change it themselves. 
So it is up to us to initiate the change. Of course, then we can ask for God's help, but we can't just sit there and say, okay, well, can God help us and do nothing ourselves? And the other thing, concept that comes to mind is that uh, a, a tradition of the prophet uh, Muhammad is that even if the last day is coming and you have a, a, a sapling to plant, go ahead and plant it. So we are not going to wait for the last day, we're just going to continue working uh, and then, you know, until the very last time. So the effort has to continue uh, and that effort has to be made by us ourselves. And, and the last thing quickly I would say is that, of course, the general concept that you know is that uh, in the, from the Quranic version is that God can change people's hearts, people's conditions to the point that people who are enemies can become friends. I love the and, fact that you provide that quotation. If for no other reason, then we also have an identical quotation in Judaism about if the Messiah comes and you have a tree in your hand, plant the tree, then greet the Messiah. Um, Ian, then I, I must wrap up and give us the break. Just that. Humility and hubris makes the collision inevitable. This is wonderful. I'm, I'm so enjoying this. We have to take a break, though, and we'll be back after this break. You are listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Um, our guests this evening, uh, Mordechai Schreiber, Iqbal Yunus and Ian Punnett co-authors of How Millennials Can Lead Us Out of the Mess We're In, a Jew, a Muslim, and a Christian, share leadership lessons from the life of Moses, and we'll be back after this break. listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amzrich from Temple Beth Shalom here in Santa Fe. My guests this evening, co-authors of an extraordinary book, uh, Mordechai Schreiber, Iqbal Yunus and Ian Punnett, co-authors of How Millennials Can Lead Us Out of the Mess We're In. A Jew, a Muslim and a Christian share leadership lessons from the life of Moses. And before our break, we were talking about the immediacy of the need to communicate, to get rid of hubris, to, to really join together because time is very short. There's one question that I, I feel like I must ask in this context, and it's the, the perhaps very challenging question. In, in the book, in the context of Moses standing up to Pharaoh, you talk about sacred cows and you talk about change agents who are wrecking balls to the sacred cows. And clearly you feel that millennials are the change agents. But I have to ask who or what are the sacred cows in today's society? And I guess as a sub-question maybe afterwards, how can those sacred cows be shattered without 10 plagues? So let's start with, with Ian. Who or what, and I'm trying not to be too individualized on specific individuals, who or what are, are the sacred cows that need to be shattered in our society in order to change it as profoundly as it needs? Well, are we looking at sacred cows in terms of who do we preserve or what needs to be shattered? That's my question to you. How are you framing that? So I, I guess answer. probably what, well, I guess the choice of what needs to be shattered provides us with the opportunity of understanding what needs to be preserved. I'm not sure they're mutually exclusive questions. No, but um, the reason why I ask is because I would look at, there are, a few, very few sacred cows. Uh, if we're gonna say what needs to be preserved, 
religious freedom needs to be preserved. Um, if, if you mean it in, the, in terms of broader concepts, if you mean of what can be smashed, what are the things that we don't need? We, we, don't, we could smash a lot of our celebrity culture, which I think some people would look at and say, oh, well, we always have to have our icons. We have to have these people around whom we unify. We all, I, I think we could, we could do with fewer of them, which is not to say that I'm anti-celebrity or that I'm, you know, I'm a, I don't think pop culture is fun, but I think that's where we are. This is the crossroads on which we all stand is what are we going to invest in? What, which part of this, of that concept are we going to feed? And I say, let's make a list of the things that we absolutely can agree on. And let's start there. What are the sacred cows that we can preserve? And we would all agree on that. And of course, you as a vegetarian, they're all sacred cows, right? Or, <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you not agree? <laughs> right, right. Um, Mordechai, what, what would be on your list then of, of sacred cows to preserve or sacred cows that need to be shattered? Well, the sacred cows that needs to be preserved are the one who have the potential of good leadership, of teaching us by example, those we can trust, those that are, and of course here the example of Moses would be the touchstone that I would use to, 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 for that test. I think that the, I look at, at today's news here and around the world, and I see so many people in politics who really don't belong there, who are really, um, messing up the world. And it's, it's, it's not only here in the U.S. It's, it's, a, it, it, it's in Israel, it's in the Middle East, it's in South America, it's everywhere. And, 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 and we, the, the one thing that the book brings out is the, how terribly important good leadership is. This is terribly important. And this is a, this is a huge crisis throughout the world. And this is the area I would focus on. People, somehow so many people seem to follow charlatans, know-nothings, pied pipers. We can't afford this anymore. We are in desperate need for good leadership. Iqbal, I have to, I have to ask you the same question, I think, because it's, it's fascinating hearing these different nuances, because when it's all together in the book, um, you know, separating them off. And I'm not separating them off in order to divide, but in order to learn more and, and get more of the depth, more like uh, the, the prism, taking the white light and saying, oh, I can learn more. Uh, Iqbal, for you, what are the sacred cows that need to be preserved and what are the sacred cows that need to be shattered? Yeah, uh, and, and not to repeat what has been said already, um, you know, the saying, the more things change, the more they remain the same. Uh, and the thought I have in my mind is that uh, the sacred cow is, uh, uh, that needs to be shattered is this concept that we are going to always find new things. Of course, technology will help us, but technology doesn't help us become better human beings necessarily. Technology doesn't help us in things that really matter in terms of culture, in terms of, uh, you know, faith, in terms of uh, humanity itself. Okay, our, our humanity. And so we find that many times uh, uh, we find that in, uh, in traditional cultures or in t- traditional societies, there are values that we have set aside uh, just because we have this glamour of, of new technology, of new ways of doing things and so on and so forth. Um, whereas we could learn from them. 
And so the uh, so I, I would think that what needs to be preserved is uh, the tradition of what is best in humanity as in terms of character, in terms of living together and things like that, which tends to go by the web, why, wayside when we are faced with new ways of doing things. So new ways of doing things are not necessarily uh, taking us to new places. They might be just diverting us from our, our natural growth as human beings. But in contrast to that, can I make a point that ties, I think both of those concepts together is that that does not mean that every old idea is worth holding on to. And remember, it was an entire generation that had to pass in the Sinai under Moses's leadership in order to make way for the new. And so it's always going to be those two things in tension with each other to make the jump to the right things and then to hold on to the right things will always be our challenge. But, but isn't the challenge, an added challenge to that is who determines what's the right thing? You well, know, when, when Mordecai, for example, when he's talking into it, right? I mean, right when, when Mordecai's talking about, you know, not following, you know, politicians who don't belong and charlatans and um, that right. lovely phrase. Um, but, but if they are offering something new that they say is right and, and to take, uh, Ian's point, when you were talking about religious freedom is essential, but but some people take religious freedom in a way that is um, personal to them. And some people say, my religious freedom necessitates that I can determine this on right. you. So isn't one of the challenges for like, maybe for any one of the three of you to answer, isn't one of the challenges that that finding out what is right determining what is right is really difficult. And and the reality is that I may be talking to three individuals who can work together from three different faith communities, but then there will be other people who turn around and say, that is not right. What you're doing is not right. So how, how, do, we, how do we determine that? How do we, how, do we, how do we demonstrate? How do we make the argument for, no, this is right. This, this cooperation is right or necessary or, or anything like that. And any one of you for that one. Well, I, I would jump in. I would say that divisiveness, uh, going, uh, adopting a, the approach of us and them, we and the other, can never be right under any circumstances. This has been the mistake that we humans have been committing generation after generation for centuries, and we still do. And, and, and nobody knows this better than uh, African-Americans here in the United States, because they are the latter-day Hebrews, if you will. They are the Hebrew slaves of, of, of yore in Egypt in, in, our, in our time. And I, I, I find myself these days looking to them all the time to learn what's right and wrong, because they have become the uh, litmus test of our time, you know, yes. and, and this is where I find the answers. Thank you, Iqbal or Ian. So, so I think that to find what is right, you have to also see what is the end goal. Yes. The right is what leads us to the end goal. Right. If the end goal is, for example, in broad terms, the pleasure of God, for example, then that is what, what determines what is right, what is wrong. 
if the end goal is a society in which all human beings can live together in peace and so on, then that's that's what. So so the end goal has each each person has to determine each society has to determine what is the end goal, and then the right and the wrong would be determined by that. Uh, and, and even when in the story of Moses, uh, when things change, they change for the accomplishment of that final goal, the end goal. Yeah, I would say just to that point, it's whatever brings us more justice, whatever brings more peace, whichever brings more people, more prosperity, not just a select few, and not just based on some archaic concept of who should be the winners and who should be the losers. And let us not forget what God's greatest complaint was about the children of Israel who had failed him in the building of the golden calf that they worshiped was these are a stiff necked people. They didn't look up. And so what's right and how will we determine it is our willingness to be able to look up. And that just means not necessarily that you have to accept the one concept of God, but look beyond your own feet. Look beyond your own square that you're standing on and look up for a bigger picture. So this, I so appreciate this. With our, with our final three minutes, so it's a, a minute each, with our final three minutes, the three of you together make an extremely compelling case for why uh, it is so essential to come together at long last. And you've explained, um, you've touched on, you've opened up this idea of of why it is important to have a vision. We all come from, the three of us, four of us come from traditions that are plagued with particularism and fundamentalism. So in, just with 45 seconds each, what do you do in your faith tradition to help demonstrate how, how we can come together? Um, Iqbal, do you wanna go first? Well, from our point of view, what we try to do is to, to recognize that there's a worth in every human being. Every human being is God's creature and, 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 and deserves the respect, the sense of justice, the sense of uh, compassion with each other and so on. And so we want to go beyond uh, you know, compartmentalizing people. And the Quran speaks not only to the Muslims, it speaks to people. And a lot of verses of the Quran address people when it talks of certain values and so on. So this is the thing that's happening in, in the Muslim community now, gradually, uh, is a recognition that respect is due to all people. And then, of course, you have a, a, a series of learning from each other. And I would, have, I would have had nothing to add because after my last little speech, I would have said, can I hear an amen? I would have turned off the light and walked out of the pulpit. Thank you. a final word. Yes, a final word. I would like to draw our attention to the Hebrew prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of them. They make it very clear. Uh, there are no pri privileged people on this planet. There are no chosen people, privileged people. They are people. We're all people, we're all the same, and until and unless, if time still permits, we can all get this one basic truth that everybody deserves a break, then God help us. I love working with you guys. 
I and I love spending time with the three of you. It's just I I so enjoy your book and I so enjoy your company and your thoughts. I I really appreciate it. Thank you to all three of you. Thank you for having us again. Thank, Thank you. you. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Thank you again to my guests, Mordechai Schreiber, Iqbal Yunus, and Ian Punnett, co-authors of How Millennials Can Lead Us Out of the Mess We're In, a Jew, a Muslim, and a Christian, share leadership lessons from the life of Moses. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching.